as you're thinking about your MBA applications and your GMAT and your preparation for that alongside the work from home and everything else. So our thoughts are with you on that. What I wanna to do today is first talk a little bit about MBA admissions in general, and hopefully clarify that it's a little bit less mysterious than you might think. We'll go through some of the things that MBA admissions committees look for. Then we'll move on. Chris will talk a little bit about the GMAT and study strategies for that, what works well. We'll say just a few remarks on how the COVID situation is impacting both the test prep and the MBA admissions. There are some absolutely unique dynamics based on, among other things, the closure of test centers and the potential for applicants from the previous MBA admission cycle, international applicants who can't get their visas approved in time may be deferred. And this can change how admissions works for everyone else. And then at the end, what we'll do is we'll do some Q&A. So if you're here in the Zoom meeting, you can chat, or if you're watching us on Facebook, then you'll have to send a message to Laura at Noodle Pros, and we'll take your questions and answer those. So if we begin with MBA admissions, I like to say that MBA admissions is really about incentives and figuring out what are the MBA admissions committees looking for. And the trick is usually showing that you have those qualities. The trick is not knowing what they're looking for in the first place. The number one item that MBA admissions committees are looking for is they want to admit students who will be successful and then happy with their decision to attend the MBA program. And there are different dimensions to this. So of course, MBA admissions committees want to see your professional history. They're gonna see this through your resume, through the application form, and through some of the essays you might write about your experiences. They wanna see that you've done well, winning promotions, taking on big responsibilities, and delivering good results. Then of course, a very key part of your MBA application is articulating your career goals. This is where I'm going to say there's kind of a, a Goldilocks zone that you wanna get, that your career goal should be big enough and exciting enough to be inspiring. If you write about your career goals and you say, well, I'm a consultant now, with the help of your MBA, I hope one day to become a senior consultant. No one's going to get excited about that. But if on the other hand, you write, well, with your MBA and my accounting background, I am suddenly going to be a VC investor at the best VC firm in the country. They are just not going to believe that that's going to happen for you. The MBA admissions committee might accept that you'll probably make a new plan if your career goal was too aggressive. But then what they don't want is for you to have that feeling of, I only attended this MBA program because I wanted this amazing job. The MBA didn't deliver that to me. What a waste of two years of my life and all that tuition money. I should never have attended. I'm a detractor of this program. I'm gonna tell other people not to come. So that gets back to where they want to know that you will be happy with the outcome that the MBA can realistically deliver. And the MBA can get you into a great job, can set you up for long-term progression, but some things will be too aggressive to be realistic. Last of all, this kind of wanting you to be a success has various pragmatic factors. You may already know from your research that every MBA program publishes an employment report going to have a lot of detail about 
what regions, what industries do people work in? And then also what percent are employed when they graduate and what percent are employed three months after graduation. They then run the numbers on the compensation or at least the cash compensation. They track the salary and the signing bonus. Those certain kind of equity compensation such as restricted stock at a tech company, maybe carried interest if you're an investor, those are excluded. The school would like those numbers to be very high. They would like almost everyone to be employed and they would like people to make good compensation in those jobs so that their school looks good. And in the long run, the schools are even hoping that some fraction of you will go on to become donors as alumni. You will be so successful and you will remember the school that brought you there and you will donate back to the school. So, you know, to summarize this one, the school wants you to be successful both in your previous career and they want to feel like you have goals that will be successful in the future after the MBA. Number two, the MBA programs want to make sure that you are going to play nicely with your classmates. So MBAs are not really an academic program that's primarily focused on lectures and book learning. So even though you know, the, every, every MBA program will have a core curriculum, you will study operations and finance and marketing and all the other topics, that is not the focus of the MBA program. The parts that are much more exciting in terms of learning and development are going to be things like the soft skill development, where you will be maybe doing mock negotiations or simulating to be a management team with your classmates, or even just some of the kind of meeting your fellow students in clubs, informally, hearing from them, hey, you know, what was it like working at this firm? You know, what advice do you have for me if I wanted to pursue a career in your industry? And then the schools are looking to make sure that you're not just too purely self-interested, only looking at like how you can maximize your own salary and get a great job. They want to feel like you're the kind of person that you will share your experiences generously with classmates. Imagine that maybe you wrap up your recruiting successfully earlier. They'd like to feel like you're gonna help your classmates with their interviews and their kind of prep for job recruiting. Because the more that the students help each other, the more successful they will all be. So whether this is in your kind of extracurricular activities that you show it, whether perhaps at work you might be part of an affinity group that helps certain segments of the employee population to be successful, whether you mentor even direct reports who work for you, the MBA programs are looking for this evidence that you have some altruistic orientation and you'd like to help other people because that's part of the magic of the MBA is bringing together this class of people who will help each other during the MBA and also afterwards as alumni. The third biggest pillar is that they want to make sure that you can handle the academics in an MBA program. And this is gonna set us up to talk about the GMAT in a minute. So MBA programs, on the one hand, of course, this is not graduate school in engineering. You don't need super advanced math to do well, but you will be studying finance, accounting, economics. You will be doing rigorous hands-on projects with companies who come to campus and bring problems from their business for students to solve. They wanna make sure you're gonna be able to handle this kind of stuff. And they're going to look mainly at two factors when they're evaluating your academic readiness. 
One factor is, of course, they will look at your undergraduate GPA. Not only will they look at the GPA, they will see your full transcript. They will look at which courses you took. So if you took a very rigorous program at a well-respected school versus a kind of easier program at a second or third tier school, they will take note of that as well. And then of course, the other big factor is the standardized tests, which could be the GMAT, could be the GRE, or in a few cases, even for full-time programs, Columbia, for example, you can take the executive assessment. Now, on the one hand, of course, you just need a score that will convince them you can handle these courses. And honestly, that's not that high. Almost certainly, anyone who has a 700 GMAT score can handle finance and economics. GMAT scores have not always been as high as they are today, and people did just fine. But then the second thing that's going on with the GMAT, which is a little more insidious, and schools will not really talk about this much in public. Every school wants to have a great ranking in publications like US News. US News rankings just came out recently. There's always controversy about which school is going up and down, and the GMAT is a major factor in this ranking. So technically, kind of in terms of their weightings, GMAT score is only 16% of the total ranking. Doesn't sound like that much, but kind of think of it almost like a swing state in a presidential election. It's something that the school can absolutely control by admitting candidates with higher or lower test scores. And then some of the other factors in the ranking such as you know, surveys of employers, it's actually really, really difficult to influence hundreds of employers to rank your school differently this year than they did last year. That's a long-term branding challenge and schools cannot kind of turn that knob from year to year. So if a school needs to make up ground in the rankings, there's sometimes a temptation to admit candidates with higher GMAT scores to juice that part of the ranking. And what this means is that even if, like I said a moment ago, 700 is enough to convince them that you can handle the coursework, every extra point helps the school manage its average and makes you a more attractive candidate, both for admission and for scholarships. Now you might object, schools don't intend to raise the GMAT forever. Top schools have mostly topped out in the low 730s. But my reply to that is that there are many interesting candidates in the pool who may have lower GMAT scores if the school still wants to recruit as students without messing up their precious GMAT average. So imagine just for example, what if there was an entrepreneur in Africa for whom French was their first language? And because they were not a native English speaker, they wouldn't test incredibly well on the verbal section of the GMAT. And their total score would therefore be a little bit lower. The school may hope to offset that with someone who has a higher score, making things average out where they want. So we have one question from Facebook. Is it true that schools prefer the GMAT? Historically, business schools did have a preference for the GMAT, but in the last few years, what you've seen is that a larger and larger percentage of applicants are being admitted with GRE scores. And I believe it is increasingly acceptable. So the advice I would give, there's still a little more kind of emotional resonance to the GMAT. People are used to hearing the numbers and 
you know, they know what a 730 versus a 750 means. Schools manage that average figure more closely than they would their GRE average. If you're an amazing test taker and you could achieve 750 or better on the GMAT, you owe it to yourself to do so. If you're an average test taker and then you're unsure which test suits you best, take the GRE if you think you can get a decent score there. And then other kind of cases may be slightly trickier if you already have an incredible GRE score from, for some other reason, you already took that test, then you're thinking, is it worth the effort to take the GMAT? That's really an individual question. But as a rule, both are totally acceptable to business schools. But I still feel despite what the business schools will say about the two being equal, if you get a really high GMAT, that does more for you than a really high GRE. So I mean, with these, with these words about the importance of the GMAT, let me hand it over to Chris, who will talk a little bit about how do you use your precious limited time to raise your GMAT score most effectively and most quickly. Chris, uh, you're on Okay. Um, so for the GMAT, and right now we will focus on the GMAT. Uh, if you do have questions about GRE, the test format layout, you know, prep recommendations, et cetera, then I am certainly happy to uh, address those. Uh, but for the purposes of this discussion, uh, I want to focus on uh, GMAT itself. Um, and first to start, we'll do a quick overview of the test. And so many of you, I'm sure, already have familiarity. Um, but if you don't, the GMAT is going to be comprised of four components. So you will have an analytical uh, writing assessment, uh, which is a 30 minute prompt. Uh, you're gonna have an integrated reasoning section. And for those two sections, those are gonna be scored a little bit differently than uh, what you typically hear about when somebody gives you their GMAT score conversationally. So the score that you hear when someone says, oh, and uh, what David's speaking of, of, I got a 730, I got a 760, I got a 710. So when you hear about those types of numerical scores, that's comprised of just two sections, your quantitative reasoning and your verbal reasoning. And so we want to focus right now on those two sections, and we want to talk about how we can achieve our maximum possible score on each of those sections. So those sections, the way that the test is uh, going to you know, be constructed, um, the quantitative reasoning section, which we'll address first, is going to be comprised of two question types. And these two question types are called data sufficiency and problem solving. And problem solving is going to be what most of us are probably already familiar with. So problem solving questions on the GMAT are very similar to the kinds of math questions that you've probably seen on a variety of standardized tests, whether you took SATs or ACTs, you know, back in high school, um, all the way up through your collegiate coursework that you took. Problem solving question is going to ask you how to solve a problem. It's going to give you five multiple choice answers where you are going to select the correct answer. So problem solving questions tend to work uh, a little bit more familiarly to test takers uh, because we've seen those kinds of questions before. The question type that is particularly unique to GMAT quantitative is the data sufficiency question type. And that's one that takes a little bit of getting used to because what you're presented with there is a question that is followed by two statements. And in your answers, answer choices are going to ask you if statement one was sufficient enough to answer the question on its own statement two sufficient enough to answer on its own? Were the statements together sufficient enough information to answer the question? Either statement one or two could answer it on its own or neither the statements individually nor together could 
answer the question on their own so um, or collectively. So when you have that data sufficiency question type, you can probably even just hear in the way those answer choices are phrased that it's a little bit unique and it takes getting used to because you're not always going to have to solve a question mathematically on a data sufficiency question. You just have to address whether or not there's a sufficient enough amount of information to address that particular question. And that's the one question type that when we get into talking about the timeline for prep, how much time you should plan on putting into it, the data sufficiency and the quantitative portion is usually the biggest question mark for test takers. And that's something that for some people, they naturally settle into the DS questions very quickly and very comfortably. But for a lot of test takers, that's definitely a question type where you wanna allow yourself a little bit more time to get comfortable and to really settle into understanding the different types of data sufficiency questions and how you want to approach and address each. So that's one question type that when we're talking about a timeline in a few minutes, we're going to talk about um, putting a little asterisk next to that question type in order to make sure that we allow ourselves enough time to address that question type effectively in our prep. Now for the verbal reasoning portion of the test. So you're gonna have three different question types in the verbal section. So first is reading comprehension, which again, I think is pretty intuitive because we have experience with what reading comprehension means. We understand that we're probably going to be presented with a passage and we'll have to read it and then answer some questions that ask us to interpret and analyze that passage effectively. One thing though that we do want to keep in mind, and there are two question types in the verbal section that I will ask you to put a little asterisk next to. One is the reading comprehension in terms of how quickly we can improve. And this is something that I think that test takers oftentimes underestimate the uh, timeline or you know how rapidly they can improve a score depending on the question types within each section that you need a little bit of help with the reading comp tends to be a question type that actually is going to see much more gradual improvement you can still improve significantly but remember in the reading comp you are developing a skill you're not learning content it's not something that you can memorize these six equations and then go and answer this question set and see rapid improvement with the reading comp, you're developing a skill. And anytime you're developing a skill, it takes longer than memorizing content. So the reading comp is one question type that if you struggle with, you want to make sure that you're allowing yourself ample time because you're going to see relatively gradual improvement in that reading comp. Some of the other portions of the test that are content driven allow you to see much more rapid improvement. So there are going to be sections of the test and question types where you can memorize some key information and then you see your score jump for that question type relatively quickly. Reading comp is one that you want to make sure that you allow plenty of time for. The other question type in the verbal uh, section of the exam that you want to make sure you allow plenty of time to achieve improvement is going to be the reasoning question. So your critical reasoning questions will have what we refer to as an argument stimulus and then it's going to be followed by a question and there are specific question types in there so there is a way that you can approach the reasoning um, effectively by learning different question types and understanding your approach to each and what you should be focusing on, on the, in the corresponding uh, argument stimulus for each question type but still because that has to do with the way we think and the way that we process questions critical reasoning is also a question type where we want to allow ourselves plenty of time for improvement now, the last question type that you will see in the verbal reasoning portion um, of your GMAT is going to be sentence correction. And this is actually something that 
a lot of test takers initially struggle with a little bit because some of those grammar rules, especially some of the more obscure ones, are things that we aren't necessarily putting into practice um, on you know, our day-to-day -day, uh, either work lives or personal lives. Um, and it's something that in today's day and age with the way that information gets shared, I'm sure we can all appreciate this right now, especially as you know, we are doing everything online and we're probably spending a little bit more time while we are working from home maybe taking a peek at social media a little bit more than uh, we might we, we might really uh, be supposed to. But one thing that you will notice is that when you look at communication through social media and through text, typically speaking, we are seeing things that are not presented in their full grammatically correct version in terms of the way that that information is shared. We see a lot of shorthand. We see lack of proper use of punctuation. And you would be surprised at how quickly that starts to integrate itself into our minds and the way that we process grammar. And then as it translates to test prep, it makes it very difficult for us to notice visually or with our ear to recognize when something is written incorrectly versus correctly. So the sentence correction sometimes is, you know, just because of the changes in today's world, something that we actually end up losing our ability to recognize what's naturally grammatically correct. And it's something that the good news is sentence correction is one question type in the verbal where you can see rapid improvement because there is a finite set of rules. And if we learn, I call them the GMAT big five in the way that I teach it, but um, I categorize everything into five umbrella topics. But if we learn those five umbrella topics and we learn the rules associated with each really well, then the sentence correction is a, a question type that is a little bit more content driven and with content-driven question types, you can oftentimes see improvement a little bit more rapidly. So when it comes to test prep, and when we talk about timelines, we wanna focus on the timeline for improvement in different question types, rather than just our overall timeline for getting a better GMAT score. So what we wanna focus on there in the quantitative section, we really wanna focus on data sufficiency because that tends to be the biggest question mark in terms of how rapidly we can improve our score in the quantitative. And then we wanna focus on the reading comp and the critical reasoning as the question marks into how rapidly we can improve our score in that verbal section of the test. Now, when we look at a timeline, one of the most common questions that I get is, okay, well, how long should I take to prepare for the test? How many months or how many weeks? And that's a great question, but it is one that has a frustrating answer because the truthful answer to that question is it depends. And what it depends on is where your strengths and weaknesses lie in the test itself. And also what kind of foundation you have as far as your skill set is concerned heading into the test. So a couple of things that I really try to make sure that test takers are factoring into their timeline for prep. And one thing that actually makes this current environment with so many of us working from home or having slightly more flexible uh, work schedules, and we're not necessarily limited to just prepping on the weekends. So the regularity of your prep is actually going to have a far greater impact on score than the total number of hours that you're putting in. And when we are working till 8, 9, sometimes 10 p.m. every night of the week, and we're getting home tired, we're not realistically able to put in a lot of study time, or especially really effective and highly focused and uh, very impactful study time as it relates to GMAT. So a lot of times what ends up happening is that 
we are relegated to weekend prep. And I call it weekend prep. And we see this with a lot of GMAT test takers where during the week we get so busy at work that by the time the weekend rolls around, we focus on GMAT prep for a large number of hours. I hear all the time about you know, the test takers I work with who are putting in four hours, six hours, eight hours on a Saturday or a Sunday or both. And that's a lot of time commitment, which is excellent. We love seeing test takers prioritize you know, their GMAT prep in that way. But what we forget sometimes is that during the week, when we take Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off of GMAT prep, and it's almost a full week in between when we have last picked up GMAT material, that we don't automatically just stay at that peak performance level where we were the last time we touched the material. There's going to be a natural decrease in performance over that gap in time with which we've looked at our GMAT prep material. And so then we are seeing a little spike when we focus on it on the weekend, and then we see a little dip, and then we see a little spike, and then we see a little dip. And so you can see that over time, it really does slow our progression. And that's sometimes one of the most impactful things in a big picture timeline. The difference in a test taker being able to spend, let's say three months of really focused and targeted prep to see improvement over that span of time versus a test taker who spends eight months, nine months, a year prepping for this exam. A lot of times when you hear about these really lengthy prep times for GMAT test takers, it's because somebody hasn't found a way to incorporate it into their schedule during the week. And my general rule of thumb is that four to five days a week of some kind of GMAT prep is really important to try to adhere to. And that is totally understandable if a couple of those days have much less time dedicated. I know that when we get home late on a weeknight or you know, if we're doing prep, squeezing in a little bit of practice you know, during a lunch break and some of the kinds of things that we hear about test takers doing, it's not quite the same as fully focused and targeted prep that you're doing where you're at home in a quiet environment really ready to uh, you know, focus entirely on you know, like improving your GMAT test taking ability with nothing else as a distractor. But nonetheless, squeezing in those little bit of GMAT reviews during the week is really important. It can be 15 or 20 minutes on a given night, those extra couple nights a week. We know that the bulk of our availability for prep time is really gonna come on weekends and that's absolutely okay. But in order to limit the amount that we slide each week when we take that big chunk of time off, we wanna make sure that we're squeezing in at least a little review during the week, even 15, 20 minutes a night, maybe three of those nights during the week so that we're able to maintain that performance level so that we can continue to improve from there the next time we sit down with the material in a little bit more intensive fashion. Uh, we have a question from Facebook. Uh, should I take the GMAT at home now that they are offering it? Uh, so um, officially as of Tuesday, um, so it was yesterday, uh, I think midday uh, that um, they posted it um, on mba.com, but um, they are working for um, mid-April is the goal in order to be able to provide the opportunity for GMAT test takers to be able to take the test from home. Uh, and two factors that I have discussed with a couple GMAT students right now uh, that I think you wanna incorporate into your uh, test taking approach uh, are these. So one is, you wanna really look at what your at-home environment looks like. I have done tutoring with uh, prospective GMAT test takers 
where their at-home environment is a really good test-taking environment. It's a focused setting. They have great internet connection. They have you know, a quiet, focused environment to where they can really um, you know, take advantage of this opportunity to actually test in conditions that are almost even more optimal than the typical GMAT testing environment, even if you go into a test center where you have some other test takers around and you have some of those kind of ambient noises and distractions that um, for some test takers actually make things a little bit more difficult. I have also worked with students in the last few weeks where the at-home prep environment and the at-home test taking environment is certainly less than optimal. And that's something to factor in is what is that at-home testing environment like in your house? Because if you live by yourself, no pets, no distractions, and you're able to fully focus, then maybe right now is a great time to choose to take the GMAT from home if that's available you know, to you in the window of time that you're looking to take the test. Uh, but if you're at home environment, if you're married, if you have a couple kids, if you have three dogs, if there's a lot of background noise and distraction and makes it more difficult for you to be able to perform at your optimal level, then perhaps at home testing is gonna be less than ideal uh, for you. So that is one factor to keep in mind. I think it's great that GRE and GMAT are offering this opportunity amidst you know, this COVID crisis for us to be able to you know, take these tests from home. And I think that that's a great tool, but it is one that we have to ask ourselves a couple um, important questions um, about uh, as it relates to you know, our prep and performance. Uh, the second question that I think is really important to ask yourself when considering the option of testing from home is you want to look at what the timetable is like for your prep and where you're performing prior to considering that test from home option. Because that's the other factor that um, I think I have heard a few test takers uh, really sort of push themselves to trying to test earlier than expected because they feel excited that there might be this test from home option. And a lot of times they you know, say, oh, well, if I test from home, that's so much easier. I like that better. I want to do that. And you don't want to artificially push up your test date to take the test at a time when you're less prepared than you actually you know, could have been just because you like the idea of a test from home option. So while this test from home option is going to open up soon, it doesn't necessarily mean that you want to rush yourself to go ahead and take advantage of that if you're not fully uh, prepared. So just make sure when you are considering the test at home option that you factor in what the testing environment is like and what your overall preparedness looks like as far as your ability to perform at the level um, that you desire you know, on that test. Um, and the last factor that I wanted to uh, discuss as it relates um, to the timeline. So uh, when we prepare, we wanna make sure that we are preparing in test-like environments. And I recommend for GMAT because it's not that lengthy of a test, especially if you're just focusing on the quantitative and verbal components, which I know that a lot of test takers really prioritize their practice testing to really focus on those two sections. And you can get through um, the quantitative and verbal components in about two hours. Um, so it's a little over two hours you know, for those two sections of the test. And that means that we can actually squeeze in a fair amount of practice testing, and we should. I think a realistic goal is to, for any test taker to allow him or herself a minimum of five, but a better target is somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to 10 full length practice tests that you try to do in a focused test like setting. And if you can really 
um, adhere to that as a goal, then that can sometimes dictate the timeline for which uh, you want to prepare. I usually recommend for each test taker to, if you're relegated to weekend prep, try to take one full length exam in a test like setting on a Saturday, take some time Saturday to review the content areas where you need to see improvement or the question types that you wanna focus on, do individualized practice on those topics that Sunday. And then during the week, a little bit more additional practice on those weekdays where even if we're juggling a work schedule, we can still squeeze in those 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes. And now you might have an opportunity right now if your work schedule is a little bit more flexible, which I know that it is for a lot of test takers, you can potentially squeeze in even a little extra review during the week and repeat that process that following you know, weekend. So that's something that um, is a, a pretty realistic you know, goal of how we wanna use those seven to 10 weeks leading up to a particular test date. So I think right now actually could be a great opportunity for a lot of you to take advantage of this slightly more flexible, both uh, GMAT prep uh, time available, depending on your work schedules, but then also um, you know, the testing options of being able to potentially test from home. We factor in those couple of things that I discussed, then I think that that's a great way for us to at least help put together a big picture plan and figure out when we wanna take this test you know, over the course of these next you know, few weeks or potentially a few months, depending on you know, where you are in your prep, whether you're just getting started or you know, whether you've already been working on this for a little bit and you're almost ready to go you know, for the actual um, exam testing. Uh, the last factor of the test itself uh, that I wanted to discuss um, is what this idea of a CAT is. So computer adaptive uh, test. What does that mean when we talk about um, adaptive testing? And uh, a lot of times it takes a little getting used to to understand that it doesn't work as simply as you have a set, um, a question set that is not going to change. So something that's immutable and you're just gonna answer those questions and then however many you get right, that determines your score. So that's the type of test that, you know, we're used to taking typically, you know, in uh, an academic class or maybe even, you know, older standardized tests that you've taken. That's something similar to what you would see on your, you know, high school standardized tests of like SATs and ACTs. But for GMAT, the idea of adaptive testing is that GMAT's going to ask you a question. And the question is going to be of a certain difficulty level. So we want to make sure that we appreciate what the adaptive portion looks like. And the way that it works is that, when you answer a question right, you're gonna get a harder question. When you answer a question incorrectly, you're gonna get a question that's a little bit easier. And the test is trying to identify where your skill level lies by trying to increase the question difficulty so that you're getting a question right, maybe getting a question wrong. And when the test finds your ability level, that's how your score is determined. So it's not purely just, you know, did I get, you know, out of like these 36 questions or, you know, out of these 31 questions, did I get, you know, 26 right? Did I get 28 right? It's not just number right, but it has to do with the question difficulty and how we're performing on each individual question. Um, there are a few additional Facebook questions. So I want to hand it back over to David um, to address a few of these admissions-based uh, questions. Um, if you have additional questions about GMAT and the test itself, um, we you know, can definitely follow up with um, additional information and responses to those questions. But for right now, uh, let me uh, put it back in the hands of David to address some of the admission side of things. Great. Well, Chris, I think you did a great job of highlighting some of the ways that the COVID situation might create more favorable environment for the testing. So the question that we've got here from Facebook, 
how will the COVID situation impact the MBA admissions policies? I think a couple things are going on. So the big question is, if you were planning to apply in the fall, should you pull it forward and should you apply now in the extended round three deadlines if your target schools are one of the ones that has done that? The reason that the schools are doing this is that they have a fear. The schools have already made admissions decisions in the previous year, round one. Think around, you know, decisions were released in December or so. Many international applicants were admitted and now there's doubt about whether the visas can be issued for them to come to the US and attend the program. The schools would not want to run a class where they simply have a hole that all the international students are absent and they just run a smaller class size. They want to fill those up. And that's why they have extended these deadlines. If you are a strong candidate and you are a US citizen or otherwise you have a way to be in the US with no visa troubles, then you might be a very attractive candidate to the schools right now. There's a little bit of a bet or an element of speculation that will COVID clear up quickly? Will the visas be issued in some expedited manner? But for now, the schools are trying to admit a larger number of domestic applicants and ones who can be in the US to fill that potential gap. The other data point I would give you Looking across our client base, I have seen a number of domestic applicants recently pulled off of wait lists and admitted there. And in some cases, ones who I didn't think would be admitted at particular schools, ones who had GMAT scores as much as 40 points below the average or one who was unemployed, in fact, pulled off of the wait list. So it showed that the schools were very eager. Your worst case, if you pull forward your application, you'll have to reapply. So the worst case, the downside is actually quite limited. Now, on the other hand, if you apply and you would enroll this fall, you have to be ready for the fact that the fall semester may start partly online and everything that that brings. So it's a bit of a bargain. You may have slightly higher odds at certain schools that need to fill a gap. You're taking the risk whether you'll be on campus or remote for the fall. So next question on Facebook, Will taking the test from home impact how schools think about your score? If you look really closely at what GMAC has said, GMAC, the organization that runs the GMAT, when they described the test from home option, they were very specific in using words that the test from home option will be similar to the GMAT. So they've given themselves room to present it as a separate test, but they made clear it's on the same 800 point total scale so although they will put a kind of a small asterisk there, I think the truth is if this, if this situation continues, many people will test from home. You will not be at a disadvantage compared to other people in the pool. Every business school will have to accept the test from home scores. So I would be perfectly comfortable if you can get a good score on the take from home option to do that. I don't think you should have any reservations. Laura, do we have any other questions coming through? Well, that looks like we've answered everyone's questions. So I wish you luck on your MBA applications. I hope that you will make the most of your time here if you have excess time in your schedule working from home. Get out there and do your test prep join the school's virtual events, 
start planning your story in terms of your career goals, your personal story, and what you want to get out of the MBA program. And no, I see one last question that Laura is putting through. So this one's probably better for Chris. Is the GRE verbal content harder? So I'll put that back to Chris. Thank you uh, for that, David. So um, harder is a, a little bit subjective, um, but what I can tell you about uh, GRE verbal content is that it is much, much, much more. There is a relatively small vocabulary component to GMAT. Um, for GRE, the verbal portion is, they do have a, a reading comprehension component, but the verbal score is much more significantly impacted by your vocab knowledge. And that's something that if you like memorization, then you can oftentimes score very well on the GRE uh, verbal section because we can come up with a list of word roots, prefixes, and suffixes that you should memorize. We can come up with lists of you know the um, most commonly tested vocabulary on GRE. And that's something that you can set a schedule for adhere to it and actually see tremendous improvement you know, in that section and score very well. As I mentioned with the GMAT, so the reading comp and especially the reasoning questions, so that's less content-based and it takes a little bit longer to see improvement there. So a lot of it is just appreciating if you like the shaping of the way that you think and you're comfortable using more of those reasoning skills to apply in a testing environment rather than strict memorization, and sometimes GMAT tends to be a better fit on the verbal side of things. If you're really good with memorization, especially of large volume, then the GRE verbal is going to be, uh, you know, like a, a little bit easier for you if you're comfortable just putting in the time, you know, make a thousand flashcards, a bunch of Quizlet, you know, vocab sets and really memorize that material effectively. You can see uh, the best, uh, you know, the best scores there. Uh, I have a variety of sources as far as um, figuring out uh, the GRE um, vocab. So there are existing lists of most commonly tested, um, you know, question types. Um, I'm sorry, um, uh, vocab sets, um, you know, that relate to all of the vocab related question types. Uh, but um, there's also a, a lot of really good word roots, prefixes and suffixes um, content that you can memorize. I'd be happy to share that with Laura that we can, you know, follow up, um, you know, from this event with, you uh, you know, a, a list of resources that you can utilize you know, for that GRE vocab. Um, but the most important thing, you know, GRE wise, is if you are considering GRE and you are looking at that verbal section, you want to basically evaluate your ability to memorize vast amounts of vocab content, because that's really what's going to dictate your score there. So I see a couple more questions here on the admission side. So one is a variation on something we talked about earlier. Will MBA programs have random spots opening up in the fall because international students don't show up? So I would expect not in the sense that international students may not be able to show up for the visa reasons, but schools will have visibility on that in plenty of time before the semester begins. And second of all, one thing you can't rule out, schools may offer a thing for students to join remotely from anywhere in the world. That's the other option that schools could do if visa issuance is blocked. They could either offer people who were denied visas the chance to defer admission by one year, or they could allow them to join remotely, in which case those seats would not open up at all. 
what I think you can exclude is anything unfair. The school will not simply decline the applicants they had previously accepted. That would be outrageous. Schools will never do that. In terms of the slots remaining open after students don't come, the schools have deep wait lists that they can pull from. And then they are trying to get more applicants in the door right now with the delayed deadlines and an economic crisis always brings out more MBA applicants. So I expect that the schools can always fill the gaps that appear. Then we have the question, are certain demographic groups disadvantaged if they send a GRE score instead of a GMAT? It's a subtle question. So I can imagine that some demographic groups are very good at test taking if you are if you're in a country where your college admissions was determined by your performance on standardized tests. So many applicants who we've worked with in India studied very hard for the IIT JEE entrance exam to the Indian Institutes of Technology. They may have developed incredible test taking habits and study habits and then bring some of that over to their standardized test taking for MBA admissions. If the admissions officer is looking at a pool that includes a huge number of interesting candidates who also have mega GMAT scores, there's going to be at least a small temptation for the school to pick some of those candidates, potentially over someone who had a GRE score for the reasons we discussed earlier that the like it or not, the GMAT is the bigger kind of vanity figure that schools will compare each other with. But I think that any effect of this is very small. I think if you have a good GRE score, you should feel fine. We have had international applicants from many countries admitted with GRE scores, and I would not obsess about this topic. Well, I think finally we have gone through the questions. So like I said, good luck on your MBA applications, good luck on your test prep, and stay strong through this tough time.